All right, friends, let's find our seats and get underway this evening. Thank you to you all for braving the heat to come out and uh, be with us tonight, hear the Word of God, pray together for those of you who are with us for our first, uh, our first hour. If you've got your Bibles with you tonight, open up to Peter's first epistle. It's right after the book of James, right before... Uh, as you can imagine, Second Peter, towards the back of your Bible. Last week we got such a strong introduction to this wonderful book and we saw um, some of the uh, things that surround the, the introduction to this book, some of these introductory issues, things like authorship and did Peter actually write this epistle and all of this stuff and and there are some, we, we talked about how there are some people out there who get all wound up and say, well, there's no way that a dumb, lame fisherman could have written First Peter because the language is so eloquent and so strong. And he appears to be such a, a well-read and, and, uh, and discerning guy. He, a fisherman can't write this. And we would go back to the book of Acts where Peter is described after his first sermon as someone who uh, preached in a manner that astounded the most learned men of Judaism of that time. And, and we understand further that, yes, Peter is the small a author of this book, but there is a big A author of this book. And so we uh, understand then that there is absolutely no reason for us to believe that Peter didn't write this book. And as we will continue to see, uh, Peter is well-versed in the Old Testament, and he's well-versed in the teachings of Christ, and he's well-versed in the life of Christ, as we would expect as someone who was there to witness the life and ministry of the Messiah. And we saw that he writes to these aliens, these aliens that are scattered throughout uh, the regions surrounding Israel, and uh, the, those uh, when we talk about the book of Acts and we talk about the gospel going forth from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, these Jewish believers are scattered at the ends of the earth. And we see that they're in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. And we talked about this concept of, of the, the choice of God, the choosing of God, and the way that God uh, has, has elected and drawn these believers to himself and how that becomes so foundational for Peter's argument here that, that God has chosen these believers and he's known these believers um, and we saw uh, so brilliantly the way that Pastor Scott laid out the, the Trinitarian foundation of this letter, the way, that, the way that Peter describes the work of God the Father, the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and the, uh, the sacrificial blood of Jesus Christ with the end goal of obedience, and then this pronouncement of grace and peace to these believers. And I think it's important as we move forward to remember where these believers are, where these Christians are, that they are uh, scattered. You might hear uh, the phrase the diaspora, that, that they're dispersed, they're, they're out in the world, they haven't been gathered in yet, and they really serve as a picture of all believers, that we are still in some sense 
part of Adam's exile, that we are still east of Eden. We haven't yet returned to paradise, and so we still await that day when, when that westward movement will take place, when once again we will uh, be rejoined to our God and to one another in paradise, in the new heavens and the new earth. And that, that movement from exile to, be, to being brought back, to being restored, is really the theological underpinning of all that Peter will write in this epistle as he encourages these believers to look forward to that eternal hope of glory, that solid joy that ought to undergird and mark the life of the believer. And that is indeed what undergirds and marks this entire letter. So Peter introduces himself. He greets his readers. He introduces the Trinitarian perspective that he applies throughout the letter. And Peter now is going to introduce his first major section of the book. This is the first of six movements that occur in this book. And we'll see them as we go. And this first movement it really is all of chapter 1 from verse 3 through verse 25, um, and really it's kind of connected. This is really interesting. Peter, pe- pe- people who say, oh, Peter was a dumb fisherman, this guy is a literary genius. The way that he dovetails his sections together is, is unbelievable. The flow is so smooth. The way that Peter joins together, I mean, it's incredible. And I'm just looking at verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, where... He's been talking about the new birth. This first section, chapter 1, is all about the new birth. New birth, new birth, new birth. Being born again. The joy of salvation. The joy of being brought together in, into union with Christ. And then he just, it's like, okay, the, the implication is you're a baby. You're a baby. You're a baby. You're a newborn. You're a newborn believer. You're a baby Christian. And then you get to chapter 2, and he talks about the, 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 the new birth is brought forth by the word. And then he just so smoothly, chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, just smoothly transitions. And not only does the word justify you, not only does the word cause you to be born again and become this baby Christian, this spiritual baby, but it also causes you to grow. And every time Paul, or excuse me, Paul, I'm so in Romans mode. Every time that Peter makes these transitions throughout these movements in the book, you see that every time. It's awesome. Once we get to 2, 1 through 3, you'll see the way that Peter makes that transition. For right now, we want to focus on the idea of the new birth. The new birth. And that's all of chapter 1. And you can just get this idea of the new birth tattooed on the inside of your eyelids because for the next nine or ten weeks we're just going to be focusing our attention on what I would call maybe the new birth and its benefits or, or regeneration and its fruit or uh, the, the, the gifts and blessings of salvation or something like that. And that's really what we're looking at. And this comes uh, straight out of chapter 1 verse 3 where we see that central uh, that central verb that has been, that, that central action that has been done to us. What has happened to us? Chapter 1, verse 3, we have been born again. And then as we go through chapter 1, we see all of this language about the, the saving power, the mercy of God that comes to bear on the lives of these believers. And then he closes the chapter. He closes the section with the same exact phrase. Verse 23, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, But what is imperishable, that is through the living and enduring word of God. And that's how he opens and closes the section is with this emphasis on being born again. Being born again. And so we're going to see what we'll call the the fruits or the benefits of the new birth as we move forward. And Peter is concerned primarily then to help these scattered believers, help these dispersed Christians. And also really by the Holy Spirit to help us in 2022 at West Hills Church to understand the new birth 
understand its benefits, understand its blessings, understand its implications for our lives. And this is nine ways or so in chapter one that Peter does this. The first thing that Peter's going to do is he's going to demonstrate the hope that comes to our souls from the new birth. That's verses three through five, right? We see that the new birth secures for us in Christ an eternal glory to which we look forward. And then secondly, we see as we move down the chapter there that Peter demonstrates that even in the midst of trial, in the midst of tribulation, the new birth gives us reason to rejoice. Thereby, he demonstrates the joy of the new birth, the joy of the new birth. That's six through nine. And then uh, third, we, we see Peter explaining how the new birth was actually foretold, the foretelling of the new birth in the Old Testament, verses 10 through 12, which demonstrates through the mouth of Peter how the prophets actually looked forward from Moses all the way to Malachi as to the new birth that would come to us in Christ. Verse 13 is a, is a fourth implication. It's, it's Peter's fourth point, but his first implication. This is Peter demonstrating that the new birth requires sober preparation and discipline as we look forward to the hope that was explained back in verses 3 through 5. Fifth, Peter brings us a second implication. Those who are born again are called by God to be holy. That's verses 14, 15, and 16. We see in verse 17 and 18 down through 19 that because the new birth is brought about for us at a great price, the born-again person is called to a third implication, a third pattern of behavior, and that is godly fear. Godly fear. And then we see the work of Christ in the new birth. All the things that Christ accomplishes on our behalf as he works to secure this new birth for us. And then eighth, we see a fourth implication that the new birth ought to bring about a fervent, enduring, and eternal love for our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's verse 22, verse 23. And then ninth, as Peter closes this section on the new birth, he is eager to emphasize the unfailing, enduring quality of the Word of God, the Word of God being the vehicle by which the new birth was proclaimed through the prophets and is in Christ proclaimed to us today. Proclaimed to those who are dead in their trespasses and sins. So that's like the next nine, ten weeks of 1 Peter there in summary form. Um, so if you wrote all of that down, you already know exactly where we're going and the, the depth to which we'll be diving into 1 Peter. For right now, for tonight, we're just going to focus our attention on verses 3, 4, and 5 of chapter 1. And we're going to be talking about the hope of the new birth. The hope of the new birth. And so as we start tonight, let's read God's word and then we'll jump right into our outline. If you grabbed one on your way in. In the back, let's read chapter 1, verses 3, 4, and 5. Peter writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
So reads the word of the one true and living God. Let's jump right in tonight and let's start breaking down this passage and considering the depth of what Peter has to say to us tonight. If you've got your outline from the back, you can see that there's like 14 million points on there. There's a whole bunch of stuff. I did that on purpose to try to help keep everything straight. So then you're going, oh, where, where is he? Where's, where, where are we in the text? Where, where can I take my notes? It should be abundantly clear for you there. So let's start at the very center. We're going to go a little bit out of order here. We're going to kind of do it like a pyramid. We're going to start the most important stuff that's kind of actually right in the middle of the phrase. And then we're going to kind of break it out. So let's start with just this central idea, this absolutely the blazing center, right? This is like on fire for Peter. He's like, this is where I want you to look. This is the idea of the new birth. It's that phrase right there in the middle. Caused us to be born again. Be born again. This is the idea of the new birth. And this is where we're going to begin our focus tonight. The new birth is central to the argument of Peter. He starts here on purpose because really what Peter is doing is he's trying to paint a picture for us of this from this moment, right? Boom, you're born again. And then what is my life going to be like from that moment until the Lord calls me home from that moment until the, the hope of glory, the imperishable hope that I look forward to the living hope, these things that I have that are stored up, protected, right? And like Ron was telling me before that things that aren't just insured, they are assured for us by God. They are protected by the power of God. All of these things that come to us at the new birth, right? How is that going to look? What is that life going to look like for me from that moment? Until I reach that hope, when, the, when my faith becomes sight, when hope and faith fall away and love is the only thing that remains, how am I going to get there? And that's Peter's whole argument for the whole book of 1 Peter. And so he's got to start somewhere. He's got to start with this new birth. So the whole concept of being born again, this whole phrase, being born again. Um, the, 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 the phrase, at least, is very familiar to us, right? Anybody that's opened their Bible or even sort of been around Christianity at any point in time goes, okay, I kind of get the idea of being born again, right? We've had presidents in the United States in recent memory who've been like, ah, oh, I'm a born-again Christian, right? And so we, that's, that's very, that's very uh, normal in our minds, right? We, we understand this idea of being born again. We hear it all the time. And, and we, we typically think of being born again is, is that that critical mark of saving faith, right? That's when it all starts for the Christian, right? I was born again. I was saved, right? I believed in Jesus. I decided to follow Jesus. That's a moment of the new birth, the moment of being born again. And that's really, if you want to summarize it, that's a key part of what it means to be a Christian, to be born again. What's interesting is that this exact phrase, born again, only occurs two places in the entire New Testament. Fun fact. It's only, only in two places. First Peter, we already saw it in verse 3, and then we see it again in verse 23. And the only other place is the more famous of the two occurrences, is John 3, right? When Jesus has his rooftop late night meeting with Nicodemus, the leader of the Pharisees, and he's asking him all these questions. And, and Jesus uses that phrase there, born again. He uses it twice there. He says, you must be born again, right? By water and the Spirit. And then if you, but if you expand that terminology out, you see that it's not just Jesus and Peter who use this language. James uses this language. James likes to say born of God, what it means to be born of God. 
And uh, John, as well, uses the phrase born of God. And you see that a number of times in 1 John. So we start to see that there's a little bit of of a biblical theology of new birth that develops over the course of the New Testament. It starts with Christ. And all of his apostles like to talk about this new birth, about what it means to be born again. Paul speaks to the idea as well. And Paul prefers the language of being made alive. Being made alive. And so we see not only does Jesus like the idea of being born again, Peter likes it, James likes it, John likes it, Paul likes it. If it was important enough for those five to talk about, we better talk about it. So that's what we're going to do. Peter then drinks from the fountain of Christ along with the rest of these New Testament writers. And they see the concept of the new birth as being critical to our understanding of Christian identity. Who are we as Christians for Jesus For Paul, for Peter, for James, for John, the new birth is a critical part of that identity. Being born again, being born of God, being regenerated, being made alive. So for us to really understand what's going on here, we need to define some terms. We need to figure out, okay, what do we actually mean when we say born again? As we move on to how Peter specifically applies this truth of the new birth to his exiled readers. I could have made up a definition of being born again. I could have made up a nice, tidy definition of regeneration. It could have given you that. And I thought, that's lame. I'm going to quote an old dead theologian. So I'm going to do just that. This is from Charles Hodge in his Systematic Theology. And this is what Charles Hodge says. This is how he defines regeneration or the new birth. And you can write those down. You can write down regeneration equals new birth or new birth equals regeneration. Those are the same things. Same concept at play here. Hodge says this. By a consent almost universal, the word regeneration is used to designate not the whole work of sanctification, nor the first stages of that work comprehended in conversion, much less justification or any mere external change of state. But, now this is key. This is the center of Hodge's definition. Regeneration is this. It is the instantaneous Instantaneous change from spiritual death to spiritual life. So, in other words, when we use this phrase, born again, when we use this phrase, regeneration, it's you once were dead, but now you're alive, right? Like like Lazarus, right? When he comes forth, Jesus speaks the word and boom, Lazarus is awake. Regeneration, therefore, we're back to Hodge, is a spiritual resurrection. It is the beginning of a new life. Sometimes the word expresses the act of God. In this context, God regenerates. Sometimes it designates the subjective effect of his act. In other words, the sinner is regenerated. He becomes a new creature. He is born again. This, says Charles Hodge, is regeneration. So you can write that down. Regeneration equals being born again, new birth, spiritual resurrection, all of these things. They're all simultaneous, synonymous terms. So Peter has in view here then this miraculous work of God whereby life is brought forth out of death. Where life is brought forth out of death. But Peter has a whole bunch of qualifications and quantifications for this new birth. So we're going to continue examining the argument. Let's move down to our next point there in the outline. The foundation of the new birth. Mercy. Mercy. You've got it already written down in your outline, so you don't have to write it down. 
Peter centers his argument around the concept of the new birth, the concept of regeneration. And in so doing, then Peter also asserts the foundation. Hey, where does the new where does a new birth come out of? Where does it come from? What is it built upon? It's God's mercy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy caused us to be born again. Peter thus extols the greatness of God's mercy in this act of new birth, in this act of regeneration. The, the new birth then for Peter, right? We understand mercy. Uh, grace is being given something that you don't deserve, right? Grace is a gift. Mercy is the other side of that coin. Mercy is God restraining his hand. God is not giving you what you deserve, right? So mercy is God holding back what we do deserve. Grace is God giving us something that's totally free. Okay? So with that in mind, then, Peter conceives of the new birth as a picture of God's restraint. God is restraining something. God is holding something back. What, what should God pour out on everyone? Death. Instead, in an act of mercy, of restraint, of his judgment, he causes us to be born again. Note Peter's further emphasis here. What does he say? God caused us according to his great mercy what does the text say god has caused us to be born again in other words god is totally active in the new birth we are totally passive what does that mean well that mean think back to the analogy it doesn't break down that quickly did you cause your own physical birth did you say all right mom it's time to go i'm coming out no you don't have anything to do with that. If your mom doesn't give birth to you, it's not going to happen. You have nothing to do with your own birth. And so in the same way, God is the one who causes this new birth. And so Peter here is teaching the complete and total sovereignty of God in salvation. To quote the words of God on the mountain with Moses God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And that mercy for Peter takes shape in the form of a new birth of being born again. As God causes his chosen people from verse 1 to be born again. He breathes new life into their dead souls and provides them with a sure hope. That their new spiritual birth in this life will give way to a new physical birth in the life to come. Peter and Moses then affirm together in extolling the mercy of God that the sovereign and singular effort of God and God alone bring about the new birth. And that sovereign and singular act is an act of mercy. As he restrains his hand of judgment on the one hand and instead offers life. Again, we return to Charles Hodge. Regeneration, the new birth, is an act of God. It is not simply referred to him as its giver. And in that sense, its author, as he is the giver of faith and of repentance, it is not an act which by argument or persuasion or by moral power he induces the sinner to perform. But it is an act of which he is the agent. To put it simply, it is God who regenerates. The soul is regenerated. In this sense, the soul is passive 
in which a change is wrought in us by someone else, namely God. Regeneration then is not an act performed by us. The new birth, regeneration, being born again is caused by God according to his great mercy. And think about that. Reflect on that for a minute. What did we all deserve? Death. What has God given in restraining that judgment and that death he has given us? Life. I could stop right there and jump right to the application and say, this is a cause for great joy. I would be stealing from Peter's thunder in verse 6 if I did that. But that's that, that mercy is worth praising God for. It's worth extolling God for. Look at where we came from. Look at what we deserved. And then look at what has been withheld and then what has been given. Judith, you had a question? Yes. So what is that time then when we were born? Because it's God's doing that. Mm-hmm. So it's not because, let's say, we joined the university or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that's part mm-hmm. of the. So, do you understand what I'm yeah. asking? Yeah, and it can be eight years. And everyone, I think, I think everyone who's thought for more than ten minutes about the timeline of their salvation has sat here and wondered, when was the moment of regeneration? I will tell you right now, I don't know. Oh. Okay. All right. For myself, I have no idea. I know when. As the, as the Reformed Confessions say, I know when I willingly came to Christ and received the gift that he freely offered. I don't know when the switch was flipped right. inside me right. that made me willing. When I walked in this place or when I was baptized or, you know, mm-hmm. exactly what was that point? And I think I would categorize that under the mysteries of God. Mm-hmm. When, does, when does the new birth happen? If we don't cause it, that's something that's beyond my comprehension. That's something's beyond my comprehension. Something's beyond my ability to give a, a hard and fast answer to, because it's not something that we see. Right? It happens inside. It happens in our souls. It's a it's a new spiritual life. And so, all of that to say, I don't know, but God knows. And and I'm confident that one day when our minds are are made new and we're able to have a fuller understanding of who God is and how He works, that maybe we'll be able to look back down the corridors of time and back into our lives and go, there it is. That was the moment that the Lord really got a hold of me and my trajectory went. And now I'm off the path that I was on. I'm on a new path. Because again, we, we, you are going to sit here and ask. You, I, you ask people all the time, why, why did you decide that you were going to come to church? Why did you suddenly decide to read your Bible? Why all of a sudden did words that made you angry before suddenly bring you so much joy? Some people think they know, though, right? Some people yeah, I think you can. I think you can know. I mean, let's face the facts. Paul had a really clear picture <laughs> of when of when the Lord got a hold of his life and when that that switch was snapped. But, but not everybody has a Paul experience. And, and what you're saying is that doesn't. Exactly, exactly. And this is something that brought so much peace and comfort to my soul when I was sitting at age 18, 19, looking back on my life and going, I don't know when I got saved. I don't have this testimony where it's like all of a sudden I was, you know, I had some great, you know, like you think of, you know, these famous testimonies like John MacArthur where he's 18 years old and he gets thrown out of a car and slides 200 yards on a 
asphalt road. His back is full of asphalt and somehow he's alive and he goes, something's got to change. Right? I never had a moment like that. My dad was a pastor. My mom was raised in a pastor's home. I grew up hearing the gospel. I grew up reading the scriptures. I grew up singing all the old hymns. And I, I couldn't tell you. I could not tell you when that switch flipped for me. Exactly. But I know now when I look at God's word and I see, hey, this is what God's word says a believer should be. And this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. And these are all of the things that should be going on in a Christian's life. And I look in the mirror and I see that in my life. I know, well, that switch must have gotten flipped at some point in my life. I couldn't tell you where. So some folks have a really, what I call a Damascus Road experience where they go, and they know, hey, that was the moment when God got, got a hold of my life. So you're, but, talking, about, you're talking about the aha moment, moment when you go, whoa. Yeah. And some people really, some people have that like in, in 30 seconds. Some people, it's 30 years of the Lord slowly working and slowly doing certain things where all of a sudden we look back and we go, hey, the Lord was working and his hand was in all of this. Um, and sometimes you look back and you go, I don't know when that switch was flipped. I don't know when it was that I was actually made alive. But that's the, that's the beauty of our assurance is that, is that you don't have to have that. You don't have to be a Paul and have a Damascus road getting knocked off your horse and being blinded for three days moment to know that God's got a hold of your life, that he's working, that he's sanctifying you. So Exactly. Exactly. All right. New birth caused by God's mercy. Now, there's a big word, and it's not a big word, it's a small word, but it's Greek. The telos of the new birth in five aspects. Whoa, that's really heady and deep. Sorry, I'm a little bit of a nerd. Um, Peter gives us the telos. What's the telos? It's the end. It's the ultimate aim, right? What What does he say? You are, by God's great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope, toward a living hope. So what is the direction? What is, our, what is our new birth moving towards? What is the end game? What is the ultimate goal? It is living hope. It, it is a vital and future-facing faith in the grace to be revealed in the last time. And when I say that it's a, it's a vital hope, I mean that it's alive. And this, what you might call this future faith, it, 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 it breathes and it grows and it changes and it matures like something that is alive. Listen to the words of Wayne Grudem. This hope is living. By so describing it, Peter indicates that it grows and increases in strength year by year. If such a growing hope is the expected result of being born again, then perhaps the degree to which believers have an intense and confident expectation of the life to come is one useful measure of progress towards spiritual maturity. It is not surprising that such a hope is particularly evident and many older Christians as they approach death. It's Wayne Grudem. So this hope is living, it grows, it matures day by day, year by year as it draws near to the time when that hope will pass away and give way to that final and eternal sight of glory. So how does Peter qualify the living hope? First, it is the hope. It is is the in verse 4, the hope of an inheritance, and that's actually, the, the, the English sometimes gets it kind of funky in here. It's actually, Peter intends the two to go together to kind of rhyme. It's, it, it, it should read, 
according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance imperishable and undefiled. You, you might have that word obtain there to, to gain an inheritance, which is imperishable. That word obtain isn't there in the original languages. It's there to smooth out the reading of the English. So what is the, the living hope for Peter? It is the hope of an inheritance. This is the Greek word kleronomia. It translated means like a, like a legal lot or portion. And we understand an inheritance that way today. Right? Maybe you have kids who you willed or trusted um, something to. And then maybe when you, you know, when you die, you pass from this world, they receive an inheritance. They receive sort of a legal portion of your estate or whatever. And Peter here um, tells us then that the living hope is an inheritance. It is, it is constituted in this, this gift, something that we obtain Legally, but he doesn't give us the content of it. He doesn't say like what the inheritance is. Um, and we'll get an idea of that as we move on and as we actually look at um, the, the, the application of all of this, what actually Peter wants us to do with this in our lives, um, where we can start understanding a little bit more of the content. What is the inheritance? We know, you know words about it and ways that it's described and characteristics of the inheritance, but what actually is it? What do we get? What does this regenerated, born-again person actually have to look forward to? And I think when Jesus and Paul and Peter speak of this idea of the inheritance of the saints, they assume that the reader will understand their words in the larger context of Scripture. The larger context of the Bible's teaching on inheritance and specifically these legally allotted portions that are assigned to someone. So I think if we want to understand our future inheritance, what is awaiting us at the end of all things... What is the hope that we have to look forward to, this living, growing, maturing hope? I mean, let's just survey the Bible's teaching. Let's start, you can start with Adam. What was Adam's inheritance? What was Adam's lot in life? Dominion over the entire earth, the responsibility to guard and keep the created order and the blessings of fruitfulness and multiplication. And this same inheritance in many senses was recapitulated to Israel as they were given dominion over the promised land. They were tasked with guarding and keeping it, and they were blessed with a fruitful multiplication of descendants. Jesus builds upon these ideas in the Sermon on the Mount when he teaches us that the inheritance of the covenant keeper, the blessed person, is the kingdom of heaven. Comfort, dominion over the earth, satisfaction and gladness, mercy, the ability to see God in this, this sort of all-encompassing title. Like the one person who can inherit anything is who? A son. The sons are the one who inherits, who inherit blessings from their fathers. And that's the final blessing that is given when Jesus declares the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Sons of God. That is our inheritance, to be called sons of God. And then finally, if you want to get the last run of blessings that are given, the last run of the inheritance, what we have to look forward to in our glorified life, the book of Revelation, the risen and glorified Christ, declares seven inheritances of the overcomer, the conqueror, in his words to the seven churches. What does he say? Their inheritance is to eat of the tree of life in paradise that they would not be hurt by the second death, that they would receive the hidden manna, that they would rule over the nations with authority and a rod of iron, that they would be clothed in white garments, they would be made a pillar in the temple of God, and they would sit on the throne of Christ, the Lord ruling and reigning with him forever. Now, we don't have time to go real deep into all of those different aspects and all those different dynamics, but allow me just to summarize it. This eternal hope that we have to look forward to is a rich and hopeful inheritance full of 
first and foremost, life. That's what is so apparent throughout all of these things is that it's a, it is a lively and vital, eternal life-facing hope and inheritance that, we, are, that we, we eat from the tree of life. We're not hurt by the second death. We receive manna to feed ourselves both physically and spiritually. So Peter then continues. He's going to describe this inheritance in a whole bunch of different ways. He's got five ways. So we're just going to shoot right through these and see how Peter describes the inheritance. First, it's an imperishable inheritance. What do we see there? That it is that, that you are in verse four to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable. Might also be described as incorruptible or even immortal. That same word in the Greek is translated as uh, immortal or incorruptible elsewhere in Scripture. It's an eternal inheritance. It's unstained by the wickedness of the world, unstained by sin and folly, unstained by the wiles of the devil. The quality of imperishability is used elsewhere in Scripture to describe God himself. Therefore, this inheritance is divine and it shares the very qualities of God himself. It is imperishable. It is eternal. It will not ever go away. It won't ever fall away. Number two, how does Peter describe it? It's an inheritance that is undefiled. Undefiled. In other words, this inheritance is pure. It's spotless. It's without blemish or defect. In other words, as it is an eternal, imperishable inheritance, it is also a perfect inheritance. It is a perfect inheritance. As you are seeing, the inheritance that we have to look forward to is in many senses almost the opposite of what we experience here in this life. Third, it's unfading. The inheritance is unfading. Fading there in verse 4. It will not fade away. This is a rare word in the New Testament, this word unfading. But nevertheless, it does have previous ground in God's word. It is a glorious inheritance. And subtly, Peter here is actually comparing our glorious inheritance that does not fade to the glory of Moses after he saw the face of God on the mountain that did fade. Now does Paul actually describe that in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4? Peter, Paul describes Moses as he's coming down the mountain and he has all of this glory that he's seen and that he's observed and he's in many senses absorbed it, right? Because he's glowing and he has to cover his face because he's freaking out the Israelites, right? But eventually that glory fades, right? It fades away because now Moses is no longer looking face to face in the glory of God. That was in a moment. God causes glory to pass. Moses is like glowing like a star. And then the glory is gone. Moses descends from the mountain. He's absorbed that glory. He's still glowing for quite some time. But every day it's just a little bit dimmer. A little bit dimmer. Slowly it's fading. Why? Moses is no longer in the presence of the glory of God. What Peter is telling us here by telling us that this inheritance, this living hope is unfading as he is saying that when we inherit this inheritance, it is going to be glorious and it is going to be not a fading glory like Moses. It's going to be an unfading glory. Why? Because we are in the presence of the all-glorious, all-majestic, all-holy God forever. 
It's not a passing relationship like it was with Moses. It's an eternal relationship. When we inherit this glory, it shines in our faces like it shone in Moses' face. It won't go back to normal like Moses' face went back to normal. Our faces in this new covenant inheritance will never return to the way they were before. We will look into the glory of God and we will be permanently, eternally changed. Number four, the inheritance is reserved. It's reserved. This isn't like, you know, making an airline reservation today where you might roll up to the gate at LAX to board your flight to Wales (laughs) only to be told that it's overbooked and you won't be able to board. That's a really familiar story if you're familiar with a certain person in the room tonight. (laughs) This inheritance is not like a flight to Wales at LAX. It is reserved and it ain't going nowhere. What did Jesus say? I go to prepare a place for you. That's your reservation. It's like your hotel reservation, right? You're going to have a, 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 in my father's house are many what? Mansions, right? And there's one there for you and it's reserved. It's got your name on it. Boom. Judith's inheritance. Zena's inheritance. It's there. It's reserved. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> it's guaranteed and it's waiting for you. I don't want to go yet. I want to go to my prayer now. I am convinced, Tracy, that your mansion will have an 18-hole golf course in its backyard. I'm convinced of it, my friend. Convinced of it. I got to get better before I go there. You'll, it doesn't matter. You could go right now and you'd be perfect. 18 strokes. Then you'd be done with the course. Yeah, no doubt. (laughs) Finally, number five, the inheritance is heavenly. It's a heavenly inheritance. The inheritance isn't on earth. It isn't in purgatory. It's not on another planet. It is heavenly. It's in the realm of God most high. In that imperishable, undefiled, unfading place of glory. And Peter can't get enough of this inheritance. It's so rich, the description here. It's so powerful. Now, as we continue to escalate Peter's argument, we're going to see the means of the new birth. In other words, how does the new birth actually come to us? How is the new birth actually accomplished? Peter is clear. It is accomplished by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter thus places the resurrection of Christ at the very center of our lives as Christians. Without it, there is no way for us to obtain the hope of which Peter speaks without it. And even if we did, and even if we did have some small little bit of hope, 
It would not be a living hope, as Peter says, for it would not have been secured or accomplished by a living Christ. Let's face the facts, people. If Jesus Christ was still in the grave today, as Paul says, we are of all people most to be pitied. We have no hope if the one in whom that hope rests is still lying in the grave. And that's why all of these false religions and all these false teachings and all these things out there that revere these people, when you want to talk about Muhammad or Joseph Smith or all of these people, all those guys are Who is the only one who is not dead? Who is the only one who is alive, resurrected, seated at the right hand of his father? Joseph Smith ain't there. Muhammad ain't there. But let me tell you, Jesus Christ is there. We have a living hope because he is a living Christ. Period. And then why? We've got to answer why. Why is the resurrection so vital? Why is it so important? For Peter and his argument here. There's at least, I mean, there's like a million reasons, but I can point out at least two that are very important for Peter. Why is a resurrection so important? If there is no resurrection, suffering is futile. There's, there's no point in suffering if there's no resurrection. And that's Peter's whole letter. When you talk about 1 Peter, that's the whole thing. We talked in Romans, if you were with us, about the Christian's path as being a path that is walked on the road of suffering that leads to glory. And that's, that's the, you want a you theme for all of 1 Peter? That's it right there. Walking the road of suffering that leads to glory. If you're going to walk a road of suffering, you better have a solid hope at the end of that. And if there's no resurrection, there's no solid hope. What does Paul say? I just mentioned a minute ago, 1 Corinthians 15. If there's nothing but this world and this life, if we don't have a resurrected life to look forward to after we die, we better do our best here in this life to make it as long as possible, make it as fun as possible, because this is all you get. If there's no resurrection, this is it, people. Eat, drink, and be merry. Live as long as you possibly can. Put yourself in a cryosleep chamber and hope that you live forever because there's nothing after this. If there's no resurrection, at best, it's just, you know, annihilationism. You're just, and you just cease to exist. At worst, you go to, you know, purgatory or hell or something. But if there's no resurrection, this is the best it's going to get. But. If there is a resurrection, this is the worst it's going to be. Right. You're like, man, my, my life is hard. My life is tough right now. And that's true. And Peter gets that. He wants to encourage you in that. And what he's saying is, hey, bear with it just a little bit longer. Bear with it in joy. Why? Because this is what you have to look forward to. It's going to get so much. You can't even imagine it. You can't even imagine how much better it's going to be when you pass from this life into the next, when you pass from this life into resurrected glory. If there's no resurrection, you might as well remove all discomfort from your life, have as good and comfortable a time as possible. You should limit your suffering as much as you can. And if possible, eliminate it. But if there is life beyond death, because Christ proved once and for all that the dead will be raised, suffering is now bearable and even joyful because we have a second perfect eternal life to look forward to. 
And that perfect eternal life is part and parcel of the content of Peter's hope and inheritance in this perfect and eternal life is not possible if Christ did not prove that it were possible by his own resurrection and then guarantee it for us by his ascension and subsequent outpouring of his spirit upon our lives and into our hearts. The resurrection is the only thing that helps us make sense of suffering in this world. When we experience trials and tribulations and difficulties and hardships in this life, the only way that we can receive those things with joy and with gladness, as Peter instructs his readers to in just the next, the very next verse, verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice. How can you rejoice in various trials when you're being tested by fire, when you don't see him? When all of these things come to pass, when all these things come to befall you, where can you anchor your hope? You can anchor it in one solitary single fact. That the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea doesn't have Jesus in it. It has Joseph in it. It was sealed and then it was unsealed because Christ rose again. That is the hope of the gospel. That is the hope for Peter here for his scattered believers. That's number one. Suffering is futile if there's no resurrection. Number two, bringing life out of death is a critical element in God's covenant of grace. From Adam onward, as God deepens and develops our understanding of his covenant with us, we see a consistent pattern, a pattern of life coming forth out of death. Adam and Eve are banished from paradise and God makes good on his word. You shall surely die. And yet, the first recorded event post-fall is the creation of new life and the birth of Cain and Abel. The flood brings death to the whole world, and out of that death emerges the life of a new creation as Noah and the animals exit the ark as a new Adam, ruling with dominion over the created order. From the deadness, as we just see, have seen these last couple of Sundays in Romans, from the deadness of Abraham's body and the deadness of Sarah's womb spring forth the new life of Isaac. The child of promise out of Ezekiel's field of dry bones comes a vital army full of life, full of energy. God proves over and over again as he continues to reveal himself throughout his word that he is a God of the covenant. And that covenant is a covenant of grace and that covenant is a covenant of life out of death. And that life is poured out on God's people at the moment of regeneration, the moment of new birth. And that life is then consummated eschatologically when our bodies finally catch up to our souls. And we receive new and eternal physical life in glory. And for Peter and indeed for all the biblical authors, the resurrection of Christ is the blazing center of all this. It is the culmination of this covenant of life as Jesus steps forth in life out of a dead grave. Am I going to get in your face? That's a great question. <laughs> I would. I mean, I would assume so. I will. St- I th- here's the thing, Tracy. I think we'll still be able to recognize you, but it will be new, and that's all I have to say about that. Okay. <laughs> Let's move on from the critical centrality of the resurrection to Peter's argument. Let's talk about the the security of the new birth. How do we know that this new birth is locked and loaded? How do we know that we're in this thing for good? What does verse 5 say? 
It's reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected. Protected by what? Protected by a, a really strong and forceful will where it's like, by hook or by crook, I'm going to get to heaven. No, it's not by your power. It's by the power of God. The power of God is what preserves, preserves and reserves this hope for us. Peter wants to remind his readers of the sovereign protecting power of God. And this really is an answer to some of the doubts that Peter might anticipate and doubts that plague our souls even today. I have been born again. I've received Christ. But what if I fall away? What if I lose my salvation? How can I be assured that all of this is real? Peter declares simply, along with Paul, if you've been with us in Romans, that it is simply not possible to truly be born again and then fall away. Why? Because God protects you in his power. If God is protecting you in his power and you fall away, what are you saying about God? That he is not powerful enough to see your salvation through to the very end. A God that's not powerful enough to see my salvation through to the very end is not a God that I want to serve, and more importantly, is not the God of the Bible. God is the one who protects you. He holds you in his loving arms and he will never let you go. You might squirm, you might hop around, but he will hold you fast. And what is your role as God is protecting you, protecting your salvation, preserving your faith till the very end? What is your role? Let me put it as simply as I possibly can. Your job is to relax. What do I mean by that? That's really what faith is, right? Relying completely on the work of someone else to accomplish something on your behalf. So what do we do to protect ourselves and our inheritance? What does it say? It comes to us by the power of God through faith. We trust in him. We rely on him. you got to just say this to yourself every single morning when you wake up. Relax and rely. Relax and rely. Relax and rely. That's our, that's our first responsibility when we reflect on the protection and the preservation that God gives us through faith. What that means is that we trust that protection. We relax and we rely on the protection of God through faith. And this protection is going to get you all the way home, all the way to that final salvation, what we might call in, uh, in, in theological terms the eschatological salvation. You might be familiar with the term glorification, right? When we finally reach glory. That's the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. The third part of our salvation, glorification, when our faith is made sight, when our hope is realized, our bodies are made new, and the created order follows suit. When paradise is restored, regained, and we walk with God as children walk with their father. That's eschatological deliverance. That's the salvation that's ready to be revealed at the last time. So at this point, four minutes left, you might ask, well, we've made all these observations and all these theological implications, and they're great, and I'm so stimulated in my mind, I feel like I understand the text great. Okay, that's fine. That's great. I know a lot about the new birth. I know about the hope that it brings, but what do I do with this hope? 
Got a whole bunch of stuff out here. How do I travel the three, four-foot journey from here all the way out to here, from head to hands? What do, I, what do I do tonight to walk away changed, having looked into the transforming glory of the Word of God? Peter tells us, and this is actually how he leads off this whole statement, this whole phrase, which is ironically why I've saved it for last, because I believe that it's the most important part of Peter's statement here, and I didn't want to steal all the thunder by getting all hyped up about it at the very beginning. So we're going to save it for last. We're going to address the third, we're going to address the, the first phrase last. Peter's intended response to the living hope of the new birth, to the future grace of regeneration manifested in resurrection. What's the response? Worship. It is to bless God. The Greek word used here, what does it say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word there translated blessed, it's a Greek word, eulogia. Eulogia. It's where we get our English word eulogy. In its original sense, and the way that Peter uses it here, it really means high praise, right? If you look it up in a lexicon, it says high praise. And if you have the NIV tonight, the New International Version of the Bible, you'll actually see that it says, Praise be to God. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The beautiful irony of this word is that we, as Americans in the 21st century, typically understand a eulogy in connection with death. But ironically here for Peter, this eulogy is all about life. We eulogize God precisely because he is life, because Christ is alive, and because in concert with one another and with the work of the Holy Spirit, the triune God grants life to all those who are born again by his mercy. Listen to Tom Schreiner. Blessing God, not surprisingly, is rooted in the Old Testament, and it is a pervasive feature of Old Testament piety. The blessing is not a prosaic introduction, but begins the section, listen to this, begins the section with joy with joy, a gladness that fills the rest of the passage. This joy, this gladness, this blessing of God, this eulogy for God is the umbrella that overarches this entire chapter. This is a chapter of joy. It's a chapter of praise. It's a chapter of worship. Gladness and joy, then, are the practical goals of Peter's whole statement here. What should I do in light of the great hope that I have of inner life now and eternal life in the future? I should bless God, praise God, eulogize God. I should worship God. But Peter's not writing here in a vacuum. I think there's even more depth here that we can pull out as we enter into our overtime period here tonight. Peter's declaration of blessing is situated, as always, within the larger context of God's word. And as we saw in the quote from Dr. Tom Schreiner, this declaration is rooted in the Old Testament. And when we turn to the Old Testament, we find, if you read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew, not Greek. The Old Testament uses this word 70 times. 70 times, and over 60 of them follow this exact pattern. I kid you not, word for word, blessed be God. Blessed be God. 60 plus times, blessed be God. And, and really the, the pattern in the Old Testament is really the covenant name of God. Blessed be Yahweh. And when you dig into the usage of the word in the Old Testament, this is where you really plumb the depths of what Peter is trying to say here is he blesses God for being the God of the hope of the new birth. The word eulogia in the Old Testament always occurs in the covenant context, and this is demonstrated in a few ways. 
In, in the Greek, it's eulogia and theos, right? Blessed be God. Uh, in the Hebrew, it's Baruch and Yahweh. Baruch, Yahweh means bless the Lord or bless God. It indicates covenantal context simply because it uses God's covenant name, right? You, the God has a couple of names in the Old Testament. The more common one we may know is Elohim. Elohim, and that's usually translated in your Bible, God, or maybe Lord, Lord where the, only the L is capitalized. The other letters are lowercase. That's Elohim. In Hebrew, Lord, where it's all caps, that's Yahweh. That's the covenant name of God, the, the name that he declared to Moses in the burning bush. And then again to him when he was giving him the law, the covenant. When that name is used in the Old Testament, the writer intends for us to understand God as a covenant God, a God who intends to be in relationship with his people and a God who is to be praised. And then a second way that we demonstrate this is we just look at every single time in the Old Testament that this phrase is used. Blessed be the Lord. Blessed be Yahweh. Baruch Yahweh in the Old Testament. Let's just look at a few examples. Melchizedek declares God to be blessed after the deliverance of Abraham from the Egyptians in Genesis 14. When God provides a wife for Isaac, Abraham's servant declares the Lord to be blessed in Genesis 24. When God delivers Israel from Egypt a second time in much the same way that he delivered Abraham in Genesis 14, another mysterious, like, like Melchizedek, another mysterious and foreign priest declares Yahweh to be blessed. But this time it is Jethro, the priest of Midian in Exodus 18. In an escalation of Abraham's servant statement upon the provision of Isaac's wife, the women of Bethlehem declare the Lord to be blessed upon Boaz's redemption and restoration of Naomi through Ruth. In Ruth 4, Solomon also declares the Lord to be blessed upon the dedication of the temple and the realization of the Sabbath rest promised to Israel by Moses, and that's in 1 Kings 8. Finally, Ezra the priest declares the Lord to be blessed when King Artaxerxes issues the order for the Jews to return to Israel in Ezra 7. All six of these instances picture for us clearly the redemptive purposes of God for all people. As God delivered Abraham from his enemies, so God intends to deliver us from the great enemies of our souls. As God provided a wife for Isaac, so also and he intends to provide a glorious bride for his son, namely the church. And bring the two into then holy covenant with one another. As God brought Israel forth from the land of their slavery... So also God intends to bring forth his elect from their slavery to their sin. As God redeemed and restored Naomi and Ruth through Boaz, giving children to the childless, so God intends to redeem and restore and adopt his elect. As God brought Sabbath rest to Israel under the reign of Solomon, so he also intends to bring eternal Sabbath rest to his people. And as God through Artaxerxes brought Israel back, to their inheritance, the land of promise, so God also intends to bring his people to their final inheritance, the new heavens and the new earth. So by invoking this Old Testament pattern of declaring the Lord to be blessed, Peter is proclaiming a word of steadfast encouragement to these scattered believers who are receiving this letter. What is that word? God's covenant of grace has been fulfilled. It is in Christ here for you today. That is the grounds of your living hope. And that is our then response to the living hope to declare with Melchizedek and with Abraham's servant and with Jethro and with the women of Bethlehem and with Solomon and with Ezra. Blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ.
These blessings, because of Christ's resurrection, are offered and applied to each and every one of us. All these benefits are guaranteed to these believers that Peter writes to because they have trusted in the resurrected Christ. His new life inaugurates these imperishable, unfading, undefiled blessings for them and provides the basis of their hope that they will reach fulfillment in the last time. And for Peter, that's a cause of celebration. That's a cause of worship. That's a cause of praise. That's a cause of adoration. This is then the jumping point for Peter to encourage these believers for the next five chapters as he encourages them to grow up from newborn baby Christians to mature Christians, to guard their testimony, to suffer well, to live in the local church with love and mutual respect for one another. He does all of this in this shadow. God's covenant of grace is here. It has been fulfilled in Christ and therefore we must worship. So what are we going to do? Walk from this place into the inevitable suffering that we will face. If you've lived in this world for five minutes, you know that you're going to suffer. You know that you're going to face trials. You know that you're going to face tribulations. Peter's encouragement to you is this. You can face each and every one with solid, ineffable joy. Because you've already seen what God has done for you in Christ. You know what he's done. You can be confident in what he will do. So when trials come and difficulties besiege you, you can with Peter and Melchizedek and Abraham's servant, Jethro, Ruth, Solomon, and Ezra. When those trials come with these saints, you can bless the Lord who according to his great mercy has caused you to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Father, we bless your name. Christ, we thank you for your resurrection, which accomplishes all these things for us. We thank you that our hope is founded on the reality that you did not remain in that tomb, but that you arose and you ascended and you're seated at the right hand of your Father even now. Spirit, we ask, come, apply these truths to our lives. Make this hope real to us. Shine the glory of God so brightly in our faces that we cannot help but worship and rejoice, knowing that all that we face in this world is the worst that we have to deal with. For we look forward to this eternal hope of glory. It's imperishable, it's unfading, it's undefiled. We trust that you are preserving and protecting us and preserving and protecting our final salvation, that when we finally cross those stormy banks and enter into the celestial city, you are there waiting for us with an imperishable inheritance, a living hope that is now turned to sight. Lord, we await that, that day with such eager anticipation. Help us 
use this hope to motivate our daily lives, to motivate our walk as we grow from newborn babes to mature Christians, as we walk and suffer well, as we live together in the local church in love and in mutual respect, and as we seek to bear witness to your truth before a watching and sometimes antagonistic world, as we do all these things, may your glory ever be before our eyes so that we might bless your name. We praise you, we worship you, we adore you, we celebrate the work that you have accomplished for us. God, our Father, it's in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son, that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, thanks for being here tonight. We'll be right back here on Sunday morning. If you're so uh, inclined, our 9 a.m. Sunday school class starts at, you guessed it, 9 a.m. We'll be over in Holland Hall. We're in the Book of Romans, and we will follow that up with our main service uh, where we are continuing our study of the Book of Isaiah. Feel free to hang out as long as you like, fellowship with one another, get to know one another, encourage one another, and build each other up in, a, in our most holy faith. Thanks for being here. You are, you are tentatively dismissed. <laughs>